Sorry if anybody's paying attention to the preaching calendar. You got me this week instead of Jeff. Yeah, woo. Oh, one woo, yeah. Who was that? Who was that? No, it's good. Normally, I'm nearer the end of the month, but uh, not so this week. You can turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in front of you in the chair backs, and on page 949 is where you'll find our text this morning, and we want you to know, as always, that when we preach, uh, what we are preaching from is God's Word, Uh, and so hopefully you see and can make the connections this morning as I share, you can see the connections to God's Word here as we look at it in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, this This morning, I've entitled the sermon, Motivation, and it's kind of a theme that's been repetitive and come up through the uh, book of Hebrews, and you know if you've been with us for a number of weeks, you know who the author of Hebrews is writing to, and you know that he's writing to, uh, to believers that are struggling or that are going to be facing persecution, that are going to have hard times, and trials are going to come, and the author of Hebrews is trying to warn them and encourage them to stay the course and to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, right? And so we've seen some of these different themes come up. And motivation this morning is what I want to focus on because I think the author of Hebrews kind of lays it out for us, motivation to follow in Christ, motivation as to why to stay the course. And so we're going to see motivation from the past, present, and future as far as what that looks like this morning. So motivation. It's hard to be godly in a godless society And here is why we should be motivated to do so in the text this morning. There's a story of a man named Jim Marshall who was a football player. Uh, He played for the Minnesota Vikings back in the 60s. And he has a famous name, which I'll tell you in a moment and you'll understand. Um, But he is famous for one reason. He was a very good football player, defensive uh, football player. Um, But he made the headlines in the 60s when he picked up a fumble and returned it 66 yards to the end zone, scoring what he thought was a touchdown. But what makes the story so famous is that Jim Marshall went the wrong direction. He picked up the football, and he ran to the other end zone. And if you watch the video, you can see it. Sportsnet has the, their top 10 worst plays, and he's number one. And uh, when, he, when he picks up that football, I don't know if it's the worst play of all time, but certainly in football, it's, it's a nightmare for a defensive end to do that. And he picks up the football, and he starts running, and he looks behind him, and you can see he's kind of, he's looking, but he's still going, because he's got the football. What do you do when you have a football? You're going to run, right? And so he thinks he's going in the right direction. He looks behind and checks, and I don't know what he saw, because you can't really see, but people were yelling at him, I'm sure, and nobody was really chasing him, and he kept going all the way. He's not the one who's crazy. It's the people that aren't chasing him because he's got the football. And he goes all the way, and he scores a touchdown or a safety for the other team. Now, it didn't end up affecting the game. His team still won, but you can imagine having to carry that with you, right? Going the wrong direction all the way, 66 yards. And so he's famously known as Wrong Way Marshall for, his, uh, for what happened, for that gaffe in a game. And a nightmare, of, of course. The lesson being for us, the issue is not that you're running. The issue is which direction you're running in. What direction are you going as a Christian? That was what was important in Jim's case when he picked up that football and ran, and it was the uh, wrong way. And the author of Hebrews is trying to help his audience to see this in the entire book. He wants them to go in the right direction. 
He doesn't want them, in our case, in the text that we're going to look at today, he doesn't want them to go back to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant, which was law. He wants them to go to Christ. And we, we talked about fixing our eyes on Christ in the past number of weeks. And so in our text this morning, we're given motivation to run in the right direction. The author gives us the clear direction to go, and he gives us the motivation to do that based on the past, present, and future of the nation of Israel and for us as Christians. And so I want to read for you Hebrews 12, all of the verses 18 through 19 this morning in your hearing, and then we will get into the text. Follow along with me if you would. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the, he- made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you, do, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, and that is things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's a weighty passage for them this morning particularly as he starts the passage. And the first thing that we see that the Hebrew authors use is is motivation from their past. In verses 18 to 20 and also, or 21 and also verse 29. He's speaking of the Old Testament, the Old Testament covenant. Has anything in your past motivated you to be different now? I'm assuming everybody would probably say yes to that. That's how we learn, right? Maybe you've said along with every other parent on the planet, I'm not going to do it like mom and dad did, right? Or you had this, this uh, desire not to parent in a certain way like mom and dad or to live a certain way. Maybe they're an example to you. Maybe a bad experience taught you what to do next time. Remember as a kid, we grew up on, the, on a farm or I grew up on a farm and we had four-wheelers. And as a kid, you always, you know, you get cocky on four-wheelers. It's just what happens if you're a young guy. And uh, I think I was about 12 years old, and I was driving around our property, and uh, we had an old barn, you know, where they have the big hills up to the back door where you can put all the bales in and stuff, and I was going down the side of that hill, just kind of racing around, probably making too much of a mess on the gravel driveway for dad, but uh, what ended up happening was as I was going down that hill, I fell off that four-wheeler. Now, thankfully, I had a helmet on, but I fractured the growth plate in my left ankle, 
And I can remember there was a bit of trepidation getting back on that four-wheeler. And it certainly taught me a bit of a lesson, like, don't be a fool on this thing, right? Don't be stupid with how you drive it. And I was at 12 years old that I learned that lesson. Has anybody learned a lesson like that before? Yeah, we've all, we've all had those times. Our past can be a really good motivator. And that's typically how we learn. And so the motivation that the author of Hebrews presents this morning is Mount Sinai. The first thing we see that I want us to see and that the, what the author wants us to see is the fear of the law and the fear of what the law brings. The author is going to contrast two mountains, Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. One mountain can be touched, Mount Sinai, a physical place, but when we come to Mount Zion, it's not so much. If you turned it in your Bible over to Exodus and you read Exodus 19, you would be reading parts of what we hear and see in this text in Hebrews this morning where they record for us what happened when God showed up on the mountain. And that's the image that we're seeing here. Shaking, trembling, fear, trumpets. God's presence coming to dwell with His people. And it was a fearful thing. And so these verses, they portray the law. They show what God is like when He brought the law to His people. And what does it say in Exodus 19? The people consecrated themselves. They set themselves apart by washing their clothes. And what else? They weren't allowed to touch the mountain. And any animal that touched the mountain was to be stoned. You can imagine the fear. And God was so concerned that His people not break these restrictions that He told Moses in Exodus 19 to go back down the mountain and warn them again. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. The God of Sinai, the God of the Old Testament, was a God, was God to be feared. A God of judgment and punishment. And these things don't change about God, but those things about Him find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so to go back to Sinai for these people was to go back to judgment, to go back to doom, to go back to works-based righteousness, right? Where you do things and you think that those things are going to make God happy with you. He says, don't go back to those things. You cannot fulfill all the demands of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. You cannot escape the punishment of God. Nobody here can. That was the point of the law. Nobody can escape God's punishment. And at Sinai, we stand as a sinful people before an infinitely holy God. And we all deserve His judgment. And the author is saying, why would you want to go back to that? That's not what you've come to if you've placed your faith in Christ. So God's law is like a mirror. It shows us who we really are. It shows us that we are immeasurably short of God's law. Now, there's not a single command that you and I have ever kept. There's no exceptions and there's no allowances. All of us are imperfect. And even Moses in our text this morning in verse 21 was fearful. Even Moses, the one who God used, the one who saw God and spoke to God at the burning bush, if you remember that story, even Moses was fearful. In Exodus 19 and this recounting, God was showing His people His holiness. And that's what we see in verse 29. The holiness of God. God must not be trifled with. 
You cannot treat God's perfection. You cannot treat God's law. You cannot treat His standard. You cannot treat His Son lightly. Verse 29, God is a consuming fire. Consuming fire. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of a large fire, but that, that reality would become real really quickly. A consuming fire, completely and utterly destroying everything in its path. And God's holiness, His perfection, is the reason that He is a consuming fire. He consumes anything that is not holy. And so as they come to see and as He presents this, certainly the readers and for us, we ought to recognize the potential judgment only heightens the awareness of how good God is. And that's what He's trying to share with them. How God provided a way of escape, as we're going to come to, the present a way that his own can enjoy eternal fellowship with God forever. God provided the righteousness that was needed to satisfy his wrath, and that was Jesus Christ. It was all placed on him. Jesus Christ satisfied that wrath. He was righteous where we couldn't be. Sinai was forget, for, forbidden, rather. You weren't allowed to touch the mountain where God dwelled. It was terrifying. What it stood for was judgment, and death. That's the old. That's where you came from. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to works righteousness. But consider grace. Consider the law of grace. Consider the present. And in verse 22 and 24 to 24, we see the present where he motivates his readers from the present. What do we read? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion is the city of David. You've come to Zion, the city of God. There is a physical place Zion was referred to, the city of David where David dwelled. But Zion also has heavenly meaning, the city of God where God dwells. And the awful terror of Sinai shows the radical mercy of Zion. There's two completely different contrasting Mountains here, places. One's a physical place, the other one's a spiritual place. Heavenly Jerusalem. Sinai symbolizes God is unapproachable. You cannot come to God in your imperfection. But then in verse 22, we see the gracious mountain of God, the law of grace. Zion symbolizes the opposite of that, the approachable God. The law of grace. No man can be saved by the law, but they can be saved by grace. Every man will be judged. And it's either, you're either going to be judged by the law or you're going to be judged by grace. Either you'll be judged by your own works or you'll be judged by the works of Christ on your behalf. That's it. And Zion is open to all because Christ met those terms. He perfectly fulfilled those terms. And so we see the contrast between life and death. We see the contrast between Judgment and forgiveness, it's obvious to us when we read this passage, the old and the new. And he's saying, this is what you want, guys. If you've placed your faith in Christ, that's where you want to be. Not looking to your righteousness, but looking to Christ and His righteousness on your behalf. The law of grace. And so he says in verse 22, you have come. This is not just a picture of a future reality. This is present reality. You have come. It's not something that you're looking to. It's something that you have come to. You've come to the mountain 
where the flames of judgment from God burn no longer, where His presence doesn't need to be as fearful a thing as it was in the Old Covenant. God is still a consuming fire, but He bids us to come and be in His presence, right? When the veil was torn in two, you can come and you can be in the presence of God. You've come to this city to be vindicated by God. Christ's work of perfecting us is as good as done. Hebrews 10 says this, verse 10 and verse 14 in chapter 10. And by that, we w- that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ has perfected us for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctification is ongoing. Perfection is a present reality in the eyes of God. So remember that. The next time that you're serving alongside somebody who has worn your patience very thin. Or that person maybe in your small group who you feel like is only a few steps along the road of sanctification and has a long way to go and you're you know, at the end or very close to the end, right? In your self-righteousness. Consider the way that God sees them. And for yourself... This goes for you too. When you struggle with sin, when you have a besetting sin, something that weighs you down, something that causes doubt and fear and anxiety in your life, this is how God sees you. Perfect. If you've placed your faith in Christ, this is how God sees you. There's a saying, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. And maybe you've used that before, and that's partly true, I suppose. But in God's eyes, that's not true. In God's eyes, you're perfect. You are perfect. Because Christ's work is as sure as done on your behalf. And that's a great thing for us. That's a great thing. It's a marvelous thing. And it's not a license then to do whatever you want. Certainly, each of you and and myself, we all have certain sins, certain besetting sins, and maybe a network of sins that need to be discarded and need to be placed aside. Yes, but our sanctification isn't complete yet. Our perfection is. So sure is the final perfecting in Christ that it's as good as done. That's a marvelous truth. And so here are the things that we've come to, the blessings of Mount Zion in verse 22 to 24 as we read them. I just want to go over them really quickly uh, and, and briefly. But the blessings of Mount Zion, what is it that you have come to if you've placed your faith in Christ? You've come to these present realities. These things are true about you and for you now. The first one is the heavenly city. The moment you're saved, heaven becomes your home. It's where your heavenly Father is. It's where your Savior is. It's your home. What does Paul say? Our citizenship is not of this world. It's of heaven, right? Heaven is where our treasure is. Heaven is where your hope is, heaven is where your inheritance is. It's in heaven. So you've come to a heavenly city. You've come to a myriad of angels. We read this morning from Revelation purposefully. 
We've come to a great gathering of angels if we've placed our faith in Christ. A great gathering of angels who are at the throne of God right now singing holy, holy, holy. And are praising God and worshiping God for who He is and for His holiness. And we come and we join that. We join the angels, the thousands and thousands of angels who are praising God. And then the church of the firstborn. The firstborn are those who have received inheritance, who have received eternal life. Jesus says something to His disciples. And I want you to turn in, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 briefly. I want to read something for you. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Before I read, this is the return of the 72. And Jesus sends out His disciples and they come back. And I'll read for you what He says in Luke 10, verse 17 through 20. They're excited. You can imagine. Jesus commissions them out and He gives them His power and they're going out and they're doing all that they're doing and sharing the gospel and casting out demons and healing people. They come back pumped. And I can imagine... I would as well. This is what it says in Luke 10. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Can you believe it? We watched you do it and now we got to do it. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The miracle was that God's grace changed, had changed their hearts and their lives. That was the miracle. It wasn't what they were doing in Jesus' name. It wasn't the healings. It wasn't the power over the demons. It was that they had believed in the grace of God and what Christ had done for them and what was going to do for them. What is the book of life? It's the people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus. The church of the firstborn. Then it says, as we read further in Hebrews, we come to God, judge of all. God stands as judge in heaven, but He's not standing there to condemn us. There's a contrast between Sinai and the law of grace in Mount Zion. In Sinai, if you disobey, you're going to be judged, right? You'll face God's judgment. This time, God's standing as judge to vindicate us, to clear our name. He's looked at all the evidence against us, all of our sin, which is there and present, and He sees the blood of Christ, and He righteously accepts that instead of giving us the punishment we deserve. A true, righteous judge. And this ought to comfort us, knowing that God will be righteous in accepting Jesus as a perfect sacrifice who's paid and canceled all of our debts. And then we come to the spirits of righteous men. Going back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. The Old Testament saints, Abraham, Moses, David. We've come to thousands of other faithful followers who have placed their faith in Christ and who have looked forward to, in the Old Testament, peace and forgiveness and have received it. We've come to them, the same faith, the same inheritance as them. We join them. Then we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Grace, not law. How did things go for the last mediator of the old covenant? Moses, in our verses we read. Moses was fearful. He was trembling before God on the mountain. He was imperfect. And the author is saying, what a shame to go back to Moses and go back to the Old Covenant. 
Stay at the law of grace found in Jesus. And then finally, we come to the sprinkled blood, the atoning blood by which we have been redeemed. Ephesians 1 verse 17, or verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And what does your Bible say in those verses in 24? And to Jesus, the meter of a new covenant, to the sprinkling, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out to God for vengeance for being murdered by his brother. For vengeance and for despair for his life. But Christ's blood cries out forgiveness for those who have placed their faith in Christ. It speaks peace to all men and cries out for forgiveness. And you see the contrast there. Don't go back to the law. Don't turn away from your salvation. There's nothing else like it in the world. There's nothing else. And then he, in the final verses then we come to being motivated by the future have you ever looked forward and been motivated to something by looking forward i'm sure you have as well maybe it's in seeing what could be achieved if you press on right very practical example maybe you thought imagine how much healthier i'm going to be if i refrain from that second piece of cake right right yeah those two pounds aren't going to be on me they're going to stay on the table Motivated by the future. If you put a big enough prize in front of you, you will be motivated to achieve it or to strive for it if the prize is big enough. If it's not big enough, you may not find that motivation to do that. That's why we set goals that are not just achievable but are also going to stretch us. So the question is, how important is that end goal to you in being motivated by the future? How important is that end goal in either wanting to obtain it or striving for it. Maybe you want to avoid that end goal. And that's something you just do not want to experience and greatly. And so you're motivated the opposite direction of it. Or maybe it's something that you really, really want. How important is it to you? The author holds up heaven. He holds up the kingdom of God as motivation for the future. How much do you long for it to the point where it actually starts to make a difference in your life? in the way that you live and in the things that you value and in the time that you spend and in the way that you spend what God's given you? Do you truly value it, the kingdom of God, as we come to it? And the first thing we see in verse 25 is judgment for those who reject God's kingdom and God's word and His Son. Have you ever had an experience in your life where you had ignored a warning but later wish that you had not ignored said warning? I'm sure mom and dad have told you something, right? Maybe it was don't speed on that road and you got a speeding ticket on that road or whatever it was. You've been warned and you ignored the warning. At Sinai, God spoke to his people through Moses and he warned his people. And you know what happened when they disobeyed? They did not escape. They endured earthly cursings, famines, war, disease, some being left out of the promised land because of their disobedience god warned them you can you can we've read the picture of what that would have been like being at the mountain when god revealed his law the fear the trembling the shaking the noise and when they ignored that they didn't escape god's judgment if we hear god's word and choose to do contrary 
We've no reason to expect anything but judgment. We won't escape. We've been warned from heaven. See, God has spoken to us through His Son. Just like He spoke to the nation of Israel on the mountain, He spoke to us through His Son. He sent Jesus Christ from heaven, and He's spoken of God's kingdom to us, and He's shared in what He has brought. And what is our response to the gospel that Jesus Christ has done on the cross for our sins? You can either accept it or you can reject it. You can obey what God has done in revealing and, bring, and sending His Son down to speak to us, or you can reject that. What God says He means, and what God says He'll do, He will do, it will come to pass. And the Old Testament bears that out for us. Then as we consider being motivated by the future, not only to how God has spoken to us, but also we consider the unshakable kingdom in verse 26 and verse 27. At that time, let me read it for you. His voice shook the earth, but now He has promised... Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. In Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, trembling as God descends on the mountain, there's a promise that God will shake the earth again. And it's a reference to Haggai 2, which says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. What a beautiful prophecy. What does that mean? This is not the only place the Bible talks about God shaking the earth. You read Isaiah 13 and 24 or Revelation 6 and 16, you see this imagery as well. The world is coming to an end someday. You know that. I know that. The world is coming to an end. What, is the, what did our verse say though? Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also all the heavens. All of creation is going to shake. What is... Can you believe? All of heaven and earth, the stars, the moon, the sun, everything is going to be destroyed. All of it. And in Haggai 2, what is going to remain? What's going to come into God's house? The treasures of the nations. It's kind of like when you're sifting wheat or when you're panning for gold, you know, and you just throw a bunch in there and what you're trying to do is shake off all the dirt and all the chaff and all that so that you have just what's valuable left, right? And when you're doing gold, it's the same thing. You put the rocks in there, you shake them, and the gold sits to the bottom because it's the heaviest, right? And then you're able to kind of filter through that what remains, what is valuable. Our text says the removal of all things that are shaken. And what does it say? Those things that have been made. All human kingdoms, all rulers, all authorities... Everything is going to be shaken. Your job, the building that we're in right now, this isn't going to stay, right? Everything is going to be shaken. All earthly treasures, gone. You think about, as they hear this, as the, the uh, uh, listeners hear this, they're thinking Rome, right? Rome, this big mega power, which dominated the world at the time. No one ever thought Rome was going to fall. And what is Rome today? A memory, right? It won't last forever. Nothing is going to last forever. Nothing that you have will. What is going to, according to Haggai 2 and Hebrews chapter 12? The kingdom of God. 
the gospel, you and me, if you place your faith in Christ. We are the treasure that's going to fill God's house. Only eternal things are going to last. That's it. Everything else will be gone. So the question is, where's your treasure? And this new treasure is going to inherit this new heavens and this new earth. Everything's going to be left behind, and we're the only ones going, the ones who have placed their faith in Christ. Nothing's going to stop God's kingdom from triumphing. And if that is all that is going to be left when God shakes the earth, then where does that leave you and me right now? It means that only the things that are done for Christ are the things that are going to remain. Only the things that are done for eternity are the things that are going to be remain. 1 Corinthians 3, Each one's works will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built and the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. The only thing that's going to last is the gospel. And at the end, when God shakes the earth again, it's the only thing that's going to matter. One of the things, as I was listening to Jeff last week, that stuck out to me, it's a question, I don't know if he said it or not, but it was a thought that stuck out. When I get to the end of my life, will I be satisfied with the effort that I've put in to further the gospel? That was the question that stuck out in my mind. And I know for sure that by the time I get to the end of my life, that I will look back and I will say, there were some things that were good that we did that in the moment seemed like they were good, but I'm sure I will say, man, I wish I did more. I wish I could have done a little bit more there and maybe not done that so that I could have done this for the gospel. And I would bet that most of us are going to get to that point, but maybe not. The question is, will you be satisfied with the effort you've put? Is your treasure truly in heaven? There are so many ways to do this. It doesn't mean that everybody needs to go and do traditional missions and share the gospel in a tribe. That's not what we're saying. You all have your different contexts. But what is important to you? The only thing that's going to last when God shakes the heavens and the earth is eternal things, which is the gospel. That's it. Our priorities are the opposite of the world. That is completely opposite to what we've been ingrained with and what we've grown up with. They are not thinking in terms of eternal things. And so if the world gets in the way of obedience of Christ, what does that mean? It means it's time to let those things go. Because the things, the pursuits of the world are not going to last. And this is the goal. This is the goal that should make us want to give up our entire lives to attain it. That's the goal, the kingdom of God, the unshakable kingdom of God. How much do you value and treasure the kingdom of God? So much so that Jesus says about the kingdom of God, it's a treasure that if you found it in a field, you'd go and sell all your possessions in order to make sure you had that treasure. And so finally we come to the fruit of motivation, our final point then. What does he say? Therefore, In light of this unshakable kingdom, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God, our God, is a consuming fire. 
Before the end of this age, God is going to give each of those who have placed their faith in him the gift of his kingdom, the unshakable kingdom. What does it say in verse 28? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We've already received it. That reality is already true for us, and we're going to experience the rest of that, the not yet of that, when God, when God comes and shakes the earth again. And the only response to this is gratitude. The only response to the gift of God's unshakable kingdom is gratitude. Praise be to God that His mercy, in His mercy, He would save you and me, that He would offer grace to us, and that He would save us. Wow, can you believe that? Not that you did miracles in name, not that you did all these great things for God, but that He saved you. And having received this amazing gift, it doesn't mean that you're going to have bodily safety the rest of your life. All of creation groans with birth pang. And as long as we're in the body, we're going to experience futility, decay, calamities. When hurricanes come, we're going to lose things. We're going to lose homes. When floods comes, we may lose lives. It doesn't mean that we're guaranteed bodily safety. What it means is this, Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gratitude for so great a gift. And then worship. You can't worship properly without being grateful. Because if you try, you're always going to think you got the short end of the stick. You're always going to be thinking that you deserve more, that you deserve something better. You're just going to struggle to truly worship God. You've come to Mount Zion, to Christ. This is the very best thing for you, is what he's saying to these believers who are tempted to go back. And in view of all these things, the free gift of an unshakable kingdom we shall worship God with reverence and awe. What does it say in verse 29? For our God is a consuming fire. That doesn't change about our God. But His judgment and His wrath is placed on His Son instead of us. And so the question for you, believer, unbeliever this morning, all of us, are you worshiping an unshakable God? Are you worshiping, shake, or are you rather worshiping shakable possessions? Is your heart fixed on God? Is God your treasure or is the world your treasure? Is God your security or is maybe your retirement plan your security or your job your security? Worship as someone who doesn't deserve God's mercy and God's grace. When you buy a home, you purchase insurance, right? And that insurance is supposed to get you when Fiona comes and you forget to put the fence on the plan. It's supposed to get you a new fence. And I forgot to do that, apparently. And so, you know, we lost half of our fence, and that's not covered under insurance. But insurance is supposed to get you money when you lose things, right? When you lose, when you have a fire, or when you have a flood, or a hurricane, or someone steals something, insurance is supposed to cover you. So you don't have to pay for it. The gospel is not just insurance. It's not just fire insurance, where we believe it, and then we, and if God comes back and judges, then we have this insurance that's going to get us into heaven. The gospel is how Christ saves us from the wrath of God that we rightfully deserve. It's not just insurance. It is the way that God saves us from the wrath of God. 
So we come to 2 Corinthians 9.15 that says, Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Does the unshakable kingdom motivate you to live your life for Christ? Does the law of grace motivate you to press on in your faith? Does the reality of the already not yet of God's kingdom encourage you to press on? Does God's holiness lead you to pursue righteousness? And does God's gracious eternal gift draw you to offer yourself and your life to God for service? Praise be to God for His inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time to be here this morning to consider these things, God. To consider how You have sent Your Son to die for us, God. We thank You so much for the Gospel and the truth of the Gospel. And God, we pray that as we've studied Your Word and looked back this morning on the Old Testament and we've considered the way that You related to Your people during the time of Moses, God, how there was fear and trembling and, and judgment, God, how we have come to see a completely different contrast to that covenant, God, the law of grace, where You are approachable, where You look at us and You see the righteousness of Christ, you don't look at us and see our sin. You see us as perfect if we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And God, we are so grateful for that, God. And the reality of that is that you are coming again. You're coming again to shake the earth. Not just the earth, but all of creation. And all of these things are going to reveal in us, in our lives, only the things that are eternal. The gospel, our eternal life in you, our inheritance in you. And that's the only thing that's going to be left, God. And we pray that you would help us as we wrestle with that reality and as we're reminded of that this morning. What that means for us, God, is that we don't live this life for here and now. We live it for the gospel. Everything that we do is for the gospel. The jobs that I, we have are for the gospel. The money that we spend, although it takes care of our needs, is for the gospel. God, we want to invest in things that are eternal. And we pray, God, that you would help us to do that and that alone. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your unshakable kingdom, God. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.